Before we get into the sermon, I did want to take a moment and pause and just remember 21 years ago, the event that changed our world, changed the world. If you're old enough, you remember where you were on that day. You remember how you found out. I can remember walking into my office and, and meeting with the receptionist and she told me it was right after the first plane went into the first tower. And I thought, that, that's got to be a mistake. Like, that can't be possible. And of course, we know what happened, and, and yet it has shown the resilience of, of Americans. It, is, it, it showed us how we could be unified. It showed us how we could come together. And so just sometime during today, if, if you could take, just take a moment and remember the victims and remember their families and pray for their families. Their families still carry that wound. It's something that won't go away. It's something that they'll have for their entire lives. But we know that we have a God that stands. We have a God upon whom we can rely. We have a God who has never left us and will never leave us and will never forsake us. So notwithstanding the evil in the world, we know that our God is good and he has a better plan for us. Won't you join me just for a moment in a, in a prayer for the survivors and the people of New York City. Heavenly Father, on this day we commemorate all those who lost their lives, all those who have just gone to work on a typical day, only to have their life snuffed out or to have their life changed. But God, we lift up the survivors, we lift up their families, we lift up the people still struggling, and we ask God that you comfort them, and that you soothe their wounds, and that you show them your greatness. So God, we thank you for allowing us to soldier on, to remain here, and to continue to do your work on this earth. God, we love you, we trust you, and we rely upon you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to lighten the mood a little bit. I grew up in the 1970s. And like many of my contemporaries, I was raised on television. Actually, sometimes I feel like I was raised by television. But once I left for college at 17, I kind of stopped watching television. When I was in college, and, and I don't think college students these days would understand this, but when I was in college, I didn't have a television nor did I have the ability to have a television. The, the dorm rooms weren't wired for TV. There was no cable access. There was a, you just couldn't do it. Back then, if you wanted a TV, you had to A, be able to afford one. It was usually a small black and white TV with those uh, rabbit ear antennas on the top, and they never really worked very well. And sometimes, you guys remember this, you hold on to it, and then you move around your hands around the room to get the reception. And so we just didn't watch TV in, in college. And then I went off to law school. And I didn't have any time for TV. I didn't have any time for anything. And then right from there, I started working. And I worked so much, and I had so much stress that there was no room for TV at all in my life. And I got married, and we had children. And when our sons were young, we didn't have time to watch TV then either. And we didn't even let our sons watch much TV. We didn't let them watch any TV during the week. 
a little bit on the weekend. And after they went to sleep, I didn't watch TV either because I was working. Or eventually I was working and going to seminary. And as a result, I missed a lot of TV. I missed a lot of the iconic television shows that people talk about now. But in 2015, Beth and I became empty nesters. Both boys had gone off to college, and once that happened, I said, yes, I can catch up on TV. So I started to watch all the old shows that I had missed, and then I started watching some of the innovative new shows that were being made. But between 1981, when I left for college, and 2015, when my youngest son left for college, TV really changed. Before, and again, I hope you can relate to this, before then, back in the old days, back in the day, as the kids say, I never had any problem understanding what was going on on television. I could watch the shows and follow the plot, and it was okay. But when I started watching the news shows, I found myself getting a bit discouraged. Like, like I said before, I could understand what was going on. I knew what the shows were doing. But when I started watching the news shows, I just felt like an idiot. What is happening here? I can't figure it out. You guys watch this show? What the heck is going on in that show? I have no idea. And it wasn't just this show. It was all the shows. More times than not, I'm watching. And I'll say to Beth, did you get that? And she'll go, no, I thought you would explain it to me. I said, no. We couldn't figure out what was happening. We couldn't figure out where the story was going and who were all these characters and why are they being introduced and why did they kill off other characters? I was so lost. And there were underlying social messages that went right over my head. But it was obvious they were trying to convey something. And, and I did discover that if you're ever in that position, you can go on YouTube and look up explanation for Raised by Wolves or whatever show you're confused by. They do have explanations for people like me, which indicates the fact that they even have them indicates that there are more people like me than I thought. But it really bothers me that I can't figure out this stuff on my own. Why am I telling you this? Well, there's a connection. And here's the connection when it comes to God. When it comes to God, there is something in me, and maybe you can relate to this, that tends to think if I could just see God if I could just see God do something extraordinary, just one time, maybe I'll be able to understand him more. Or, or maybe I would be able to be more consistently confident in my faith. I, I often think that the reason for that is because God is so apparent. He's so, big word, ubiquitous in just about everything in our lives that he sort of blends into the scenery. And because, yeah, because he blends into the scenery, we kind of require him to do something bigger, something spectacular, something that demands our immediate attention to prove to us that God is. Andy Stanley jokes about this notion when he says, okay, I wonder if God thinks, okay, what do you want me to do? What do you people want me to do? Do you want me to create a rock that's large enough for you to live on? and then fine-tune everything on that rock so it sustains life and is vastly different from all the other floating rocks in the universe? Do you want me to do that? Oh, I already did that. And we're sitting here going, no, God, we want you to do something really amazing. 
So God says, okay, how about this? What if I give you two, two front-mounted, high-definition, 576 megapixel cameras and connect them to a computer that can process more than 38,000 trillion operations per second and store 3,584 terabytes of memory. What if I do that for you? Your brain, your eyes. Oh yeah, I already did that. And then God says, what about this? Before Russell can finish this sentence, 50,000 cells in your body are going to die and be replaced by new ones. Is that spectacular enough for you? Because I already did that as well. It's really wild. The way God made us is truly miraculous. And we haven't even gotten into the depths of it. We haven't even talked about how our brains control all of the autonomous functions in our body that go on all day, every day. We don't even think about our heartbeat our breathing, our circulation, our self-healing. You realize we're self-healing for the most part? You cut your arm, it's going to heal. There's so many things that our body does on its own. It's just astounding. It's amazing. And how do we respond to that? No, God, no, 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 not, not stuff like that. No, no, no. We, we want to see some really spectacular stuff. We want to see a miraculous healing. How about that? That's the kind of proof we need. Just something to think about. We're now in part five of our series, Bystander. And in this series, remember what we're doing. We're following the Apostle John as he journeyed along with Jesus. Toward the end of John's life, when he was an old man, he gave us an account of his time with Jesus, and he organized that account around seven signs that pointed not just to who Jesus, or to what Jesus did, but to who Jesus was. And John documented these signs. He wrote them down. It ended up in the Bible that we call the book of John. And he did it so that future generations would know the story of Jesus. He did that so that we would know the story of Jesus. But it's more than that. John intended his gospel, his book, he intended that it would not only tell us the what of Jesus' signs, but more importantly, it would tell us the why of Jesus' signs. See, John had an intention when he wrote his gospel. His intent was to convince his readers, including us, that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. And we know that because John told us that. He said so specifically toward the end of his gospel. We've been seeing this verse throughout the series in John 20. But these are written, these words are written, this gospel was written, that, so that, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, here's the why, you may have life in his name. John wanted for each and every one of us to not only believe that this is true, but to commit ourselves to, to place our trust in and, and to follow Jesus. And once we did, then things would be different. Then we'd have a different kind of life. We could live a different kind of life in his name. So today we're going to look at the fifth sign. So let's pray one more time, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for giving us the life that we have, allowing us to commemorate the tragedy of 9-11, but also allowing us to proclaim your name 
as we go forward. God, as we open up the book of John and we study your word, we would ask that you would use the things that we hear, the things that we read, to change us, to change our hearts and to change our lives. So God, give us the wisdom to understand today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to start off with a little bit of a recap where we've been. Remember that throughout Jesus' ministry, and, and we kind of discovered this over the last few weeks, Jesus traveled all over the place in the nation that we know of as Israel. Most of the time, he was kind of going north to south and south to north. He was moving between his home region of Galilee in the north down to the south in Judea where Jerusalem is located. Then he'd go back again. And whenever he was down south in Judea and Jerusalem, Jesus was in danger because he was always stirring things up, and the religious leaders were very much intimidated by him, and oftentimes the Romans were intimidated by him. So consequently, what he would do is he would spend only a short amount of time down in Judea, and then he'd go back up north in order to kind of refresh and reconnect and rest before heading back down to Jerusalem for another round. Well, in today's story, Jesus is back in the Jerusalem area, and John, who was with Jesus, don't forget that, John was an eyewitness. He stood right there next to Jesus. He told us this, and if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 9. Of course, I'll have the verses on the screen from the New International Version. But here's what John told us in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? So here's the question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? All right. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. But what you need to remember is that first century people believed that there was a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. If somebody was suffering, it was almost uniformly believed that their suffering was caused by their own doing. That their suffering was caused, direct cause and effect relationship between their suffering and their sin. But that wasn't all. Their view of self-induced suffering went even deeper. They believed that if a pregnant woman sinned, that sin would also be attributed to her unborn child. Now, this belief, of course, led to a strange situation when you're trying to show a suffering person any compassion. It's basically difficult to show somebody compassion when you're thinking in your mind, you did this to yourself. How can I show you compassion? But Jesus came along and he shifted that paradigm for them because he answered this way in verse 3. He answered them. Remember, they said, okay, he's blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. The answer to the question is neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. You guys, you disciples, you're way off base about this. That's not why he was born blind. Rather, the man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus told them, in effect, that the man's suffering actually had a purpose. There's a purpose in suffering. Think about it. Jesus lived this out. Jesus' pain and suffering had a purpose, didn't it? And Jesus said that the man's pain and suffering had a purpose too. Hmm. Could it be that maybe our pain and suffering has a purpose? Let's see. 
though it's not always the case, certainly sometimes, God chooses to show us his power by way of our pain and suffering. I told you guys this story a little bit before, but during my last major bout with back pain that, that led me to two surgeries and all that horrible time, in order to get it under control, I, I, I kind of had to leave it all to God. And as I left it all to God, I was able to see God's hand in the whole ordeal. Also, I've seen the same thing happen to so many other people. Maybe you have a similar story. When you see someone who can maintain their faith in God when they're going through a trying and difficult time like that, it leaves a major impression. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. My friend Chris was born with cerebral palsy. And I met him years ago. We were both working at the church that we came from, our sending church. And at the time I met Chris, he could, he could walk around a little bit, but he was really in a wheelchair most of the time. But it only took one interaction for us to become friends. I'd never met anybody like him. His, his sense of humor just razor sharp. He was really quick with the comeback, which I always appreciate. But what struck me most about Chris was his faith. His faith was so solid that he had an attitude about his limitations like nobody I'd ever known. Uh, he, he referred to himself more as, and I apologize if this offends anybody, but I'm just telling you what he said. He used to refer to himself as the gimp. That's what he was. He was the gimp. I'm your gimp friend, he used to say. But Chris seemed to look at every single day, not as an opportunity to complain about his situation, but he took every day as an opportunity to serve Jesus. After a few years of knowing Chris, his disability had advanced to the point where he could no longer come to work because it was too painful for him to get out of bed. So when I wanted to see him, I had to go to his house. I had to go visit him at his house. And I had to go into sort of where he was in his, in his room and sit next to his bed and hang out. He had a hospital bed in the room, and I would sit in the chair next to him and talk about life and stuff. And it's interesting, the first time I drove out to his house to, to visit him, I was kind of worried that this being bedbound, he was bedbound for about 11 years, I thought that would dampen his spirits and destroy his faith. But as it turned out, I had no reason to worry. You see, I thought that I was visiting him to lift his spirits up, but it turned out that he was lifting my spirits up. We always had the greatest conversations, and his hopefulness never wavered. He only desired to represent Jesus. Every so often, Chris had to go to the hospital, had to be rushed to the hospital for something, to be treated for some complication or another for his situation. And even in the hospital, his spirit showed through. I can remember just bantering back and forth with him in the hospital when he was in this major crisis. He was half hallucinating, and yet he was still sharp and still right there. I never had, I never had to be anybody else but myself when I was around Chris. He inspired me every single time I saw him. Well, you hear I'm speaking of him in the past tense. He succumbed to his disability in early 2019. And I was honored to conduct his memorial service. And I was blown away that how many people came up to me and told me that Chris impacted them the very same way. There were so many of us that would all go one at a time to be with him and sit by his bedside and hang out. 
But I have to tell you, I'm still blessed by that. What a blessing it was to have a brother in Christ like Chris to show me what a deep and abiding faith can look like. Or maybe you've seen God demonstrate his might through human suffering and human weakness as well. It's, it's just so powerful. All right, let's keep going. So Jesus, after this, turns to the disciples, and he says this in verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, I'm guessing by this time the disciples were used to this sort of thing. They were used to Jesus doing this. What was Jesus doing? Just, they're just talking about this blind guy standing in front of them, and then Jesus goes into this really strange, non-sequitur that's got some kind of lesson in it, and he says something that seems to be a lot deeper than what it is they're dealing with at the moment. But what Jesus said is so important. Verse 5, he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right here, this is the point of John's gospel. Here, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the source of light for the whole world. The world will never be brighter than it is right now while I'm still on this planet. When I leave this world, Jesus was implying, it's going to be a dark place. And I'm guessing here, but I have to believe that the disciples were wondering if and when Jesus was going to turn his attention back to the man in front of him. Like, Jesus, we're standing here, we're talking about the blind guy, we're asking about sin. Now you're all up in the clouds talking about light and this, that, and the other. You know, the blind guy. Well, next verse. After saying this, all right, Jesus is coming home, back to the blind guy. What the heck is the boss doing now, though? Look at this, this is weird, verse 6. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Let's not run past this. <laughs> Jesus made mud with the dirt and his saliva, and then he took that mixture and put it on the man's eyes. That, yeah, yuck, that's gross, isn't it? And then Jesus said something to the man that we've seen him say to others. He, he said to the man, go. He said to the man, Go. He told the man who was born blind, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, by the way, this is foreshadowing. Here the blind man walked by faith and not by what? That's right. Not by sight, literally. The blind man did what God would like for us to do. The blind man trusted somebody he couldn't see based upon what he'd heard about that person. The end of John's gospel, which we'll talk about in detail next week, Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. All right, back to our story, John 9, 7. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. He did what Jesus told him to do, and he could see for the first time in his life. Then the man went home, where his neighbors, who knew his story, all saw what had become of him. And his neighbors were understandably puzzled, to say the least. We go to verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, ah, no, no, that's me. 
I'm the guy. Then his neighbors follow up with questions that we all probably would have asked. You know, you, you know your neighbor's been blind since he was a little baby, and now he comes home and sees. And your question is, how? How did that happen? How did that happen to you? How were your eyes opened? The neighbors asked. And the man said, verse 11, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I could see. So the details here, that's it. That's all we see. And they're a bit scant. It's probably though a good thing, don't you think? See, the man was unaware that the mud was spit mud, right? Right, he doesn't say, oh, and Jesus did, did that, you know, and he doesn't do that. Probably better. He just told them, this guy, Jesus, made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to wash it off, and that's what I did. Next thing I know, I can see. So then they asked the next logical question, which was, can I meet him? Like, where is this guy? Where is this man? John 9, 12. And now the formerly blind man answers, oh, maybe he was in middle school, you caught doing something wrong. I don't know. Sorry, middle schoolers. Now, this is interesting. Jewish law dictated that if someone was healed from a disease and wanted to be integrated back into the community, they had to go to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had to sign off on the miracle. So that's what happens next. So they brought the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. And it's here that we discover that Jesus did it again. If you thought Jesus had learned his lesson the last time about violating the Sabbath, you would be mistaken. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Now, this is interesting. <clears throat> Even though it wasn't biblically forbidden, you, you won't find it in the Torah that it says you can't make mud with spit or any way. You, you won't find that in the Torah, but in rabbinical tradition, there was a prohibition against kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, kneading, like you knead bread, like you knead dough. In Hebrew, the word is lush. There's a prohibition of kneading on the Sabbath. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So you see the conflict in there. Some said, nope. He's not from God. Impossible. He violated the Sabbath. Others said, eh, wait a minute. He did perform a miracle. He must be from God in some way. So they were divided. When the Pharisees found out that Jesus had mixed and kneaded the spit and mud, some of them believed he violated the Sabbath. Jesus also, by the way, would have been guilty of violating the Sabbath because he performed a healing on the Sabbath a healing on the Sabbath is permitted when it's necessary to save a life. Curing blindness is not necessary to save a life. However, others among them were less certain. They thought, okay, all right, nah, maybe technically he violated the, the Sabbath. Maybe that fact shows he isn't from God. But how do you explain the fact that he did perform a healing if he wasn't from God? Everybody was confused. Jesus didn't seem to fit into the tidy little God box. And I want you to remember this concept. We're going to talk about it. This tiny little box that they'd relegated God to so that they could feel confident that they were doing right by him. That's kind of what we do is we come up with a way that we think God is and then we, we have God in this little box and then everything we do either fits in the God box or it doesn't. It makes life a lot easier for us. Anyway, next, they figured 
Let's ask the blind guy. Let's ask him what he thinks. So they, and again, this is the Pharisees, they turned again to the blind man, and they say, all right, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Now, he may have been blind, but he wasn't dumb. He sensed this was a trick question. This is a trap. And so what does he do? He kind of punts. He doesn't really give him a good answer. He says, he's a prophet. Well, the Pharisees weren't really satisfied with that answer. Some of them even thought the guy's just making the whole thing up. Until they sent for the man's parents. By the way, did you ever read this story and realize how detailed it is? This is like a step-by-step, really slow story. As you might imagine, his parents weren't excited to be called before the Pharisees. It's never a good thing to be summoned by the Pharisees on the Sabbath. Like, like if you're wondering, how does that feel? Uh, have you ever received a letter from the IRS? Every one of those letters that you weren't expecting? Like, you know your stomach feels when you see the envelope? You know, it says IRS on it, and you're like, oh, no, right? Or, or maybe when you're driving anywhere and there's a police officer in your rearview mirror, and you're not doing anything wrong, and you know you're not doing anything wrong, but still, that's kind of how they felt, I'm guessing. Verse 19, the Pharisees asked, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? And here's how the parents answered, because they were paying attention. They knew what was up. We know he is our son, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see, or who opened his eyes, we have no idea. We don't know. Pharisees, we are not giving you what you're looking for. Which was a smart move on their part. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And they figured, correctly, that the Jewish leaders had already made up their minds. They already knew what they wanted to do with Jesus. The religious leaders simply did not have any room in their vision of God and their God box to even consider that the man born blind might have been telling the truth. They'd already made up their minds that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah would be kicked out of the community. Now, isn't it interesting that the religious leaders were the ones who were blinded by their presuppositions? Now, because of all of that, here's what, Jesus, here's what the parents answered. They said, you know what? Ask him. <laughs> He's a grown-up. He can speak for himself. Ask him. Religious leaders were still not satisfied, though. So, verse 24, a second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Remember, they talked to him once before, now they're doing it again. Give glory to God by telling the truth. In other words, you better give us the answer we're expecting. They said, we know Jesus is a sinner. We know a sinner can't perform miracles like that. And what comes next is really one of my favorite interactions in the whole Bible. You see... The blind man was not a religious scholar. The blind man was not a keen theologian. The blind man didn't know about Jesus at all. But he did know one thing for sure. You know what he knew? He replied, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. The one thing I do know, however, is I was blind and now I see. That's what a witness is called. I don't know how. I don't know why, but I know that. It happened. I saw it. It happened to me. The man didn't have to be able to explain how everything worked out or why everything worked out to know that something did happen. The man didn't have to understand everything to believe something. 
And by the way, that goes for us too. And, and maybe this is where you got stuck with your faith. You want to understand everything before you'll believe anything. And I get that. I'm wired that way too. But here's something I want you to consider. You don't hold to that standard in other areas of life, do you? Think about it. Do you believe in love? I do. Can you explain love? I can't. Do you believe in consciousness? Yeah, we're all conscious, right? Can you explain it? Nope. How about fear? You believe fear is real? It exists? How about anxiety? How about attraction? We believe in all of them. But we'd be hard-pressed to come up with a clear, cogent explanation for any of them. You know what that means, though? It means that you can have a solid, joyful, enriching faith in Jesus even before you have a full understanding of all the ways that he did what he did and that he does what he still does. See, God is not asking for you to understand absolutely everything about Jesus. God is more than happy for us to develop our faith throughout our lives. The man had already given them the best answer. Listen, I don't know how it worked. I can't explain how Jesus did it, but I do know one thing. I was blind, and then I met Jesus, and now I can see. And for many of us, this, this is our story too. We can't explain it all. We can't understand it all. But we know that we can be overwhelmed by God in our lives. Listen, that happened to me. My life was unfocused. I didn't have a purpose. I'd hit a wall. I was afraid. I worried all the time. I was questioning my life choices at one point, but I got on my knees and I cried out to God. And though I don't know what happened exactly or how it happened precisely, I do know this, that God met me where I was and once I committed my life to following him, he changed it. He changed my life. And he can do the same thing for you. Now, listen to what that means. This means that if you're struggling with sadness, with money, with addiction, with anger, with fear, with infidelity, with illness, with pain, with relationships if you're struggling with your children or your parents, whatever, and you give your life to Jesus, if you'll go to him and confess and then repent of your sins, if you'll turn from those sins and turn to Jesus in your heart and dedicate your life to him, if you'll claim the gift of his forgiveness and eternal life for yourself, then God will, not might, will change your life too. Now, if you've already done that, you know. And you know that whether it happened immediately or whether it took some time, you just know that God did something and that everything changed. You were blind, but now you can see, and you've never been the same. Now, I wouldn't go back to who I was for anything. It's only by the grace of our living, personal God who invited me to call him Father that I am where I am today. All I know is this. I was blind, but now I see. The story continues. The Pharisees still not satisfied. Then they asked him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, by this point, 
if you're getting tired of these questions, imagine how tired he was getting of these questions. He'd had just about enough. So he did what many of us would do in this situation. Maybe not all of us. I would do this in this situation. He hit them with some brilliant sarcasm, which is really cool. I love this. Listen to this. This is what he does. This is in the Bible. It's really, you should read it. He answered, I, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Then he says this, oh, do you want to become one of his disciples too? Don't you love that? Snap. I mean, that was a great comment. Well, that ticked them off a little bit. That one, that one left a mark. Look what they said next. Then they hurled insults at him. So they go from interrogation to insulting, okay? You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Them was fighting words, right? So the man then steps up his game. Here's what he says next. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. How do you think that happened, huh? He keeps going. We know, this is still the man, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, now the religious leaders are thoroughly ticked off. So they take one more shot at the guy in verse 34. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now by this point, the religious leaders are just being willfully blind. They don't even want to see the truth. They simply refused to see the obvious. And by the way, if you find yourself in that position where you think you know all the answers and you don't listen to people, it is a bad look. Okay? It's a bad look on everybody who does it. It's a bad look on the Pharisees. And it's something that we as followers of Jesus need to remain diligent about so that it doesn't happen to us. Now, we know that historically, church people have been known to resist certain things. We've been known to resist scientific findings. We, we've been known to resist certain things that we've learned recently that we think somehow violate God's something or other. We can never pinpoint it because it's not true, but we think that. And we know that church people have historically been known to kind of resist loving certain kind of people. Jesus said we had to love all the people. But church people kind of say, well, not those people, right? Like, we don't have to love them, do we? We don't, we don't have to love the people who aren't like us, do we? We don't have to love the people that don't fit nice and neatly into our God box, do we? Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, which you should be, doesn't that make church people look a lot more like the Pharisees in this story? Don't they look a lot more similar to the religious leaders than we care to admit? And what happens as a result of that is, for many, instead of expressing and modeling compassion as Jesus commanded us to do, sometimes church people express disdain because they simply couldn't figure out how the God of their box could ever show those people any love at all. If you've limited God to the God of the box, you run that risk. You run the risk of forsaking many people whom God loves as well. And this forsaking them not only harms those people, but it inevitably harms you too because 
you've missed the blessing that God has designed you to receive. Listen, we Jesus followers should be the most curious, most accommodating, most loving, most compassionate, most interested people in any room we enter. We should never be afraid to look beyond the things that we think we know in order to better understand the things that we don't know. We should be the most excited people when scientific discoveries are made. We should be the most excited people about creating a context for people who are far away from God to move toward God. We should be able to celebrate any step that anyone takes toward God, whether it fits in our preconceived God box or not. Because if we don't move past the God in the box, like the men in the story, we run the risk of missing out on all that God has to offer for us. God is a whole lot bigger than our little God boxes. God is a whole lot bigger than we thought he was. And maybe God is a whole lot bigger than we were taught he was. John's entire message throughout this entire, through the whole gospel has been this. If you saw what I saw, if you saw what we saw, you too would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You too would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. If John were here, I believe he would tell us this. I'm just a fisherman. I'm a simple guy. I was minding my own business when Jesus came along. I was just a bystander who had the privilege to live in the days when the light of the world touched down in the world. And that light was so unbelievably bright. And it was so much better that, than anything else that purports to offer light. Jesus was so much bigger than any of us thought he would be. And John would say, after being with him for those three years, we saw it, we saw firsthand that he so loved the world that he gave himself. He gave his all so that no one would ever be lost to God again. And that took us all by surprise. And when he died, we assumed, ah, we missed it. We've been had. We've been tricked. It's over. But then he rose from the dead. And we realized that he was exactly, he was precisely who he claimed to be. And we learned that this whole thing was so much bigger than we ever thought possible. Guys, we need to think about that. What we see every day, the things that keep us awake at night, it's not about that. It's bigger than that. This is so much bigger. John taught us that you don't have to understand everything to believe something. So would you consider the invitation of John and just look? Because if you will... Maybe one day you'll begin to see it. Or maybe one day you'll see it again. You'll see it anew. And then you'll be ready to truly devote your whole life to living for God's glory. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the light into the world. We thank you for showing us the way. We thank you for showing us that our battle is not against what we see around us, but our battle is against spiritual forces, dangerous forces, but also for showing us that in the end, you win and your people win and that you have bigger plans for all of us.
So God, as we leave here this morning, as we head into the week, we ask that you help us to remember this in every interaction with every person that we see, with everything that we hear. Allow our hearts to break for the people who break your hearts. Allow our thoughts to focus on you. Allow our actions to reflect your glory. God, we're humbled by the fact that you know us, but you called us anyway. God, help us to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.